Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Father God, thank you that you have given us this part of the Bible. It is a special part of the Bible. It's different to much of what we read and elsewhere in the Bible. But Lord, we thank you for the way that it shows us Jesus, sovereign and in control. Lord, please help us to trust him, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, This morning, I think you will want the sermon outline, so it's on the screen where you can find it. um, Because the sermon outline has a couple of diagrams in there that may be helpful to you along the way. You'll also want your Bible open, and we'll be looking across um, a few chapters of Revelation. Strangely enough, there are a few people among us who enjoy fishing. <laughs> there may even be one or two here who went fishing on the Eka holiday. You know, that thing of setting up your rod, setting up the line, uh, baiting, casting, then really backing quickly, taking the weed off, redoing the line, rebaiting, recasting, and then waiting. And then pulling it in, taking the knot out of the line. Some people think it's an enjoyable exercise, fishing. Um, We've done a bit of fishing over the years. We've taken the kids fishing when they were younger. My fear was always that we would catch something. Because then what do you do with it? Flathead. Flathead is, it's nice to eat. Yummy fish to eat. But a reliable source tells me that many fish, such as the flathead and the stingray, have poisonous spines that can inject venom deep into the unwary victim, causing excruciating pain. So why would you play with one of them? When the kids were younger, 
yeah, I took them fishing. I was counting on the odds that they wouldn't catch anything. It was pretty good odds that they wouldn't. And I also figured that, well, if they did, then if we caught a flathead, for example, well, we could just leave it thrashing around <coughs> on the end of the line until it died. You know, we'd have victory over this animal, over this, this fish, total victory, that it's no way it's going to survive the animal thrash around for a little while, causing as much damage as possible. Now, there's no flathead mentioned in Revelation that I can tell. Certainly none in these chapters we're looking at this morning. But what we do see is we see Satan completely defeated, as good as dead, <coughs> thrashing around for a time like a flathead on the end of the fishing line. So in your outline, um, the war is over, the war is won. But battle continues for a time, for a period of time. These chapters, they give us a third camera angle on the same period of time that we saw last week in Revelation. Um, last week we saw seven seals being opened and we saw seven trumpets being sounded. Two ways of, in apocalyptic vision, two ways of describing our life, the world we live in. It reminds me a bit of um, Romans chapters 1 and 2. In Romans chapters 1 and 2, in Romans you, you see everyone suppresses the truth about God and God gives us over. It's like God judges us by giving us over to our own way of living. But then, beginning of chapter 2, there's the promise of a day of God's wrath that will come. <coughs> in the meantime, we're in this overlap. Um, God's kingdom has begun. Jesus has begun to rule, but we're waiting for him to return. I kind of I gave you this picture to try and help you think about it. So, as you think about the way time progresses, Christ has come. We've seen the cross of Christ. We've seen Jesus crowned victorious over sin and death. He is now ruling, but we're waiting for his kingdom to come when he returns. And so this, this book of Revelation is written into, this letter of Revelation is written to people who are in the overlap of the ages, people like us. The letter we know as Revelation was written to Christians living in the overlap, the now, but the not yet. Jesus is ruling, but we're waiting for him to return. So last week we saw the seals, we saw the trumpets describing the times we live in and what will happen at the end. Um, and today, we see another camera angle, another view of the same period of time. Last week, the take-home, as far as we looked at it, was to wait well. While we wait for Jesus to return, wait well. This week, the take-home, I reckon, is don't fear while you wait. Sadly, these chapters, they've had the opposite effect on Christians. They've caused Christians to fear, to become nervous while we wait for Jesus to return. Sadly, people have um, used these verses to unsettle. So, for example, if you look ahead in chapter 13, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, <coughs> then calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is six. 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 And you shudder and you get scared and think, but who is the beast? When we were in high school, um, we had this youth group night where we were told all about this move to the cashless society. Um, that would be the way that the beast will be able to get control of us. How do you know that? Well, there's a sign. <laughs> you look at the bank card sign closely, there's three sixes within each other, and one on top of the other. Talk to Rob Dunn about that at that, that sometime. How do we know? Well, there's, that, there's sixes. Of, that's the sign of the beast. Be nervous. The moral is, don't get a bank card. Don't get a credit card. If you do, you'll fall away and you'll lose your salvation. It makes you scared. That's the way a lot of people read these verses. Um, there's other strange ideas too. When I was 
in year 12, at the end of year 12, I got a job in Kmart. I was a checkout chick in Kmart. But back then, the process of um, bringing people's goods across that counter was slow. So you take an item, you, you look at the number on it, you type in this area code in the, of the store, then you type in the amount, and you hit enter, <coughs> next. And they were just moving into this stage where you could just pull things across with a barcode. But what's on the barcode? Christians reading Revelations got scared that somehow the beast would have his number imprinted in a barcode on your wrist. Yeah, okay. Looking back now, we can see these are conspiracy theories. These are things people make up that make you really scared. But it's unsettling for a young Christian. Reading Revelation becomes a scary exercise. But reading Revelation like that, introducing uncertainty, that's not the way it was written to be read. It's not meant to make us nervous about our salvation, not meant to make us think that we could somehow accidentally lose our salvation. It's meant to be, chapter 1, verse 3, it's meant to be a blessing to us to read Revelation. So if we can push all these conspiracy theories to one side for a little while, as we read chapter 11, 19 through to 15, verse 4, well, when you do that, when you push all the conspiracies away, what you see is more like a flathead flipping around on the end of a fishing line wreaking havoc around it, but it's good as dead. In these chapters, we see a picture of Satan conquered, but flailing around for a time. Um, chapter 12 gives you the, the overview, the preview of what we're going to see in these chapters, and then chapters 13 to 14 take you in for the, the close-up of the action, each flip and each, you know. Um, 11 verse 19, there's a door that's opened in heaven. The other end of this section, the reason we're looking at this scene in one go, the other end of the section, 15 verse 5, there's another door opened. There's lots of doors in Revelation. In growth group, um, there was a dad joke about it being like play school. But there's lots of doors in Revelation that kind of break the letter up into scenes. So you've got the seals, got the trumpets, you've got today's passage, three different camera angles. Today's section is broken up by these doors being opened. There's their section markers or beginning and end of a new scene in this vision. So if you look at 11 verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and you jump ahead to 15 verse 5, after this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. So 11 verse 19 to 15 verse 4, it's a single section to read as one scene. That's why we're looking at a long passage. Let's do a bit of a recap of how this fits together though. So when you look back in Revelation Chapter 1, verse 9, John opens this letter that he's writing to the churches, the seven churches. He opens this letter, he says, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John, your brother in suffering, your brother in the kingdom, was on the island of Patmos because of sharing the gospel. And 11, verse 10, um, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard this voice behind him like a trumpet and it said, write down on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And he is. So this is a letter. Revelation is a letter to seven churches. <coughs> but it's also a vision. As John writes down what he sees, he records a vision, an apocalyptic vision. The kind of thing we're not used to reading. So we keep that in mind as we read it. It is a letter and it is a vision. 11 verse 12, John turns to see this voice that he's heard and he sees this vision of Jesus among his churches, among his churches represented as lampstands. And then John takes the dictation of seven messages to each of these seven churches, these representative churches across what was then Asia. 
And then 4 verse 1 tells us that there was a door standing open in heaven. Here's your first door. A door into heaven and John sees through the door, sees the throne room with God in the centre. And then he sees the lamb looking like it's slain on the throne, on God's throne. And there's this scroll that God's holding that's loaded but it's sealed up. And as the lamb, as Jesus opens each of the seals, you see waves of judgment come across the earth. There's four very quick seals. You know, one, two, three, four, open, then two slow. And then a final seal gets opened. And as that final seal is opened, there's this, um, this silence for half an hour. And you recap back to the throne, everyone's singing praises to God. And we're introduced to seven trumpets. And you get a rerun. Um, at the start of that change of scene in verse 4 verse 1, a door is opened. And as you look ahead in Revelation, there's more doors that get opened. More scenes. There's the door beginning today's passage, the door at the end of today's passage. There's another door in chapter 19 where heaven is opened. But if you look back at 4 verse 1, there's a, there's a double scene changer happening here. In 4 verse 1, there's a door open, and there's also this voice that says, Come. And as you look through Revelation, you'll see more um, times when this voice calls, Come. In 17 verse 1, and in, 19, uh, in 21 verse 9, the start of chapter 21, you piece it all together, Revelation is broken into scenes. Scenes are seven seals, are seven trumpets, the seven sites that we're looking at today, but they're not numbered. Um, seven bowls. And then you get this fall of Babylon and the final victory and the new creation. Remember the seals and the trumpets? They have this pattern of four fast, two slow, and then one. It's almost like, and those four fast describe the world we're in, and then the two slow describe what happens when Jesus comes, and then you pause. That sort of pattern. You can almost see the same pattern across the scenes too, with four very quick ones that kind of focus on the, 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 the struggle of now, and then two that focus more on the end, and then this kind of victory lap at the end, this new creation. Take it or leave it, there's one way that you can see Revelation hanging together as a single letter and this record of a vision. Why show you all this? Just to help you appreciate, this is an, un, uh, is an amazing vision. It's meant to be incredible. If you can imagine the first Christians who, to receive this letter in these seven churches with this, this little bit of message for them specifically out of this vision, and then there's the pictures of amazing scenery, and Revelation 1 verse 3 says, blessed is the one who has it read aloud, because I think that's how we've been read in the church, aloud. A blessing to be able to see and understand from a new perspective in this sort of big picture, um, visual, word visual kind of way, the way Jesus is in control and he will return. A way to encourage Christians to keep persevering until Jesus returns. A spectacular vision of our life while we wait and of what will happen when Jesus comes. This is a letter and it's a record of a vision. It's intended, 1 verse 3, to be a blessing. The scene we're looking at today is bookended by two open doors. That's why we're looking at the whole thing. And along the way through, there's seven times where John says he saw. And it's kind of, it gets a bit lost in the translation into English, but it's there in the Greek, the same two words. They're elsewhere in Revelation too, but through this section, that's what you have, seven of them. They're not numbered like the seals, the first, the second, the third, but there's seven sites. Um, and as you look down through it, it goes like this. 
So third in verse 1, we see uh, John sees a beast coming out of the sea. Third in verse 11, he sees another beast, this one coming out of the earth. Fourteen verse 1, he looks and he sees the lamb and 144,000 with him, the same ones you saw who overcame back in chapter 7. Another camera angle, similar ideas. In 14 verse 4, they're referred to as the first fruits of those to be saved. Then there's another sight, sight number 4. In 14 verses 6 to 13, John sees three angels proclaiming the truth, and you get the details. Um, 14 verse 14, John looks and sees a harvest taking place, and the next two are really close together. 15 verse 1, he sees the, the, the seven last plagues um, that will make up the next unit. So it kind of does the same thing as the seals trumpets. You get an introduction to the plagues. 15 verse 2, John saw again, and he saw all those who have been victorious, singing the praise of the Lamb around the throne, just like happened with the seals and the trumpets. But you'll notice the first, and I saw, or the first sight, it's not till 13 verse 1, and that's because chapter 12 introduces all the characters, introduces everything, and gives you a preview. Remember the flathead thrashing around on the end of the line? Chapter 12 tells us that the fish is caught. And chapters 13 to 14 shows us how it thrashes. So, put it another way, chapter 12 shows us the defeat of Satan, the war is over, as you see in the outline. 13 to 14 show us the battle continuing until Jesus returns. In other words, we're looking at this period of the overlap of the ages. It's a very long way to introduce the passage. We look at chapter 12 now. Chapter 12 introduces the main characters in what follows. So, chapter 12, verse 1. We see a sign in heaven, a woman about to give birth. 12 verse 3, we see an enormous dragon waiting to devour the baby the minute it's born. I'm glad the kids are out and have sick kids. But the dragon misses out, 12 verse 5, because the child snatched up into heaven, spared that fate. Meanwhile, the woman is protected for 1,260 days, which, with some bad maths, is about three and a half years. Um, times, time and half a time. That sort of idea. As you look through Revelation, it's just loaded with sevens. Here's an incomplete seven, a three and a half. It's a limited time, perhaps. Certainly incomplete. Who's the woman? Who's the dragon? Who's the child? What's going on here? They're the questions we've got. Who are these characters? And like with the rest of Revelation, keep reading. Let Revelation tell you who these characters are. Um, first, uh, the easiest is the dragon. If you look down in 12 verse 9, 12 verse 9 says... The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So the dragon is a way of, in apocalyptic vision, representing Satan. It's like, um, remember when 3D movies came out? This is like a three-dimensional impression of Satan, a dragon. Um, The child then, well, you'd guess that's Jesus. The description echoes Psalm 2. Pretty much quotes it and refers to um, references the coming of Jesus as God's appointed ruler, God's eternal king. So, verse 5 she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. You've got um, Psalm 2 echoing behind there. So, the dragon is Satan, the child's Jesus. Revelation shows this to us as you look at the image. So, who's the woman who bears the child? You kind of think it's got to be Mary, doesn't it? That's what we read in the Gospels. Well, it's more likely to be Israel, the nation of Israel, because as you look at the, the way this is described, you've got, the, you've got the Old Testament in your background. Remember the story of Joseph? Remember Joseph has these visions? Remember 
the visions he has of his family. So I'll read it for you, Genesis 37 verse 9. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream and this time the sun, the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. The sun, the moon, 11 stars, the way of talking about um, Jacob's family. Jacob grows into the nation of Israel. Look at um, 12 verse 1. A great and glorious, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and crowned with 12 stars on her head. Bing, bing, sounds like Israel, the nation of Israel, Jacob's family. This woman is described in terms of the nation of Israel, and compare that with um, Revelation 12 verse 17, letting Revelation give us the answer to our question, who is this? Um, 12 verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. And it says, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the woman is God's people. The Old Testament Israelites, that's where Jesus traces his descent. So Jesus comes out of God's people. And then there's the mention of another character in verse 7, this Michael and his angels fighting against Satan. At this point, you just want to stop because it's getting too confusing. But if you've been reading Daniel recently, just by chance, if you read Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, you'll see Michael is the one who fights for God's people. It's just another way of, in apocalyptic language, describing this battle, this spiritual warfare that's going on. We're given a reminder that there is this spiritual side of this battle as we wait for Jesus to return. Um, when One more trick here. When Revelation uses the word heaven, it's not always talking about God's throne. Um, here, the door is opened into the temple. Yeah, that would be God's dwelling. Um, but this idea of heaven, it's more like the spiritual realm. And so, yeah. Piecing all this together, what we've got is this amazing apocalyptic vision of this door open in, and we can see the overlap of the ages from the kind of spiritual perspective, this battle going on. Satan's defeated, but he's given time to thrash around until Jesus returns. It's a vision of the defeat of Satan. Um, if you look at 12 verse 9, notice how Satan is completely defeated and hurled down to earth, out of the heavenly realm, boom, done. That's not a description of the making of Satan. You know this idea that Satan is a fallen angel? People jump in and there, that's where. No, have a read of it. Look at verse 11. Look at when this happens. 12 verse 11. They overcame him, overcame Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. The victory is won with Jesus' blood. This is Jesus defeating sin and death, and Satan being hurled down to earth, still on the end of the fishing line, for a time, until Jesus returns to clean up, to judge. There's the flathead thrashing around on the end of the line. It's another perspective on the overlap of the ages, waiting for Jesus to return. Something which needs to be addressed, though, for us as Christians is um, fear of Satan. It can be very easy to think of, you know, Satan on equal footing with God kind of thing, the good and the bad God almost. But Satan's power lies, in verse 9, lies in his ability to deceive, to trick, to lead people astray. In actual fact, Satan's defeated. He doesn't have any power. Verse 10, Satan is the accuser. The only way 
God, uh, Satan can do us harm is to deceive us into disobeying God. And then laughing as we're subjected to God's wrath. In other words, Satan himself has no power, but uses deceit to place us at odds with God who has power. Um, as Christians who know forgiveness in new life in Jesus, we don't need to fear. Chapter 12 is the summary, and then the details, the slow motion begins in chapter 13 as we look at the different, um, the seven different ways of seeing this. Um, notice 12 verse 12, the woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. The first beast comes from the sea, and the second from the earth in chapter 13. It's all setting up what follows. But just for a second, hit pause and revelation. Open Daniel, and I didn't put any of this on the screen because I reckon it's good for you to see it for yourself. Open Daniel, come to um, Daniel chapter 7. A little bit of background to help you understand uh, what we'll read in Revelation chapter 13. So Daniel chapter 7 verse 1. This is Daniel who was the Israelite who was taken into captivity in Babylon. Um, Daniel who saw these amazing visions. So Daniel 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Verse 2, Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. There before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like that of a bird. This beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. Keep getting, skip a bit there, jump down to verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. So after all these horrible beasts, here's one looks, looks like a human. Like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He comes into God's presence. This is a vision, remember, or a dream. He was given authority, glory, Sovereign power, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In the context of Daniel, he's seeing this vision of human kingdoms that come and go, and Jesus, or God's king, who comes and rules forever. It's, it's a vision. The beasts, the human, the human leaders, they come up out of the ocean, rule for a time, then they're gone. But the Son of Man rules forever. And then you come to the Gospels. And Jesus uses this title for himself. He takes on the title of the Son of Man. He wants us to think of Daniel. Look, the fact that he is the king, the ruler, who will rule forever. God's appointed king. You've got the pretenders, the human beasts, come up out of the sea. So with all that in the mind, in back in mind, then come to Revelation chapter 13. And all of a sudden, there's nothing new here. Revelation 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So it's a human ruler, if you've got Daniel in the back of your mind. He had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. Okay, so it's a terrible ruler. 
The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth that like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. It's like the beast of all beasts, if you've got Daniel in mind. The combination of all these bears and lions and leopards, and it's been given all authority of Satan. But you see the similarity with Daniel's vision. This vision of a powerful human ruler. But we know human rulers don't stand. The Son of Man rules forever. So we don't need to fear. Um, this one has had a close call already. So verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. It's like, yeah, all human authorities come and go. This one's had a, near, a, a close shave, but still... And then verse 4, men worship the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? We're seeing this vision of um, the beast who is one of Satan's representatives and one of the means by which Satan plays his threshing around game. Our Old Testament background leads us um, to equate this beast with human rulers. And perhaps verse 3 would have been this kind of thing which would make it easy for the original readers to say, it's just like, I don't know, name a human ruler. But the point isn't to identify the human ruler. The point is to recognise the pattern, to recognise they are only a pretender. Um, in the second sight, so 13 verse 11, we meet another beast, another representative of Satan. This one um, would appear to be a religious leader, I guess. Um, doing signs that, like in verse 13, that make you think of Elijah, you know, fire from heaven, so a prophet-type person. But in this context, um, this is one who deceives in verse 14. Makes people want to worship the dragon and his representatives. So in this context, um, this is where the mark of the beast comes in chapter 13, verses 16 to 18. A few times already in Revelation we've seen God has put this seal on his people, put this mark on his people, we're marked as his. Sounds like, you know, in the New Testament, the idea of the Holy Spirit being a deposit guaranteeing that sort of mark. But then also, um, and if you look down in 14 verse 1, you see it again. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their forehead. They're, they're claimed. They've got God written on him, his sign on them. His seal. Receiving the sign of the Lamb or the sign of the beast, it's just a symbolic way of speaking. So you don't, it's not a literal, you know, people walking around with a number written on their head. It's a way of speaking about being marked as God's people, a good thing, or marked as people who you know, rebel against God, a bad thing. Um, we're not meant to identify this number of the beast. We're told what it is. There's nothing to identify. It tells us exactly what it is. Um, we're not meant to identify it because the number is, we're told, a human number, and the number is, verse 18, 6, 6, 6. All these sevens through Revelation, this one can't get there. Three times over. It's a failure three times over. You can't do it. It's incomplete three times over. Imperfect. Unable to be sovereign. Unable to... That sort of thing. So don't get paranoid about losing your salvation by accidentally being marked by the number of the beast. That's not the point. The point is to see human rulers for who they are. They'll pass. Um, when you read these chapters properly, you know, a lot of this conspiracy stuff just isn't there. It's not there to be found. And when you read it like this, you think, oh, actually, 
It's not telling me anything new. It's just telling it to me in an amazing apocalyptic vision, an amazing way. And that's how Revelation works. It's the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ and a description of what it will be like when he returns. There's a whole lot more um, that you can unravel in chapters 13 to 15, but we're going to have to leave that for another day. That's translation for me saying we're just not going to cover it. But you might want to look at it in growth vertical or some other time. But look ahead to the end. Look at chapter 15, verses 2 to 4. See how this section, this scene, will close with everyone giving praise to God. So 15, verse 2. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Just like each of the other scenes we've seen so far, the seals, the trumpets, this one finishes with praise to God. The war is over. Battle goes on for a time. But we can see where it's heading. The victory is certain because God's God and Jesus has conquered sin and conquered death. So as followers of Jesus, we live in this overlap of the ages. We see God's kingdom coming. We long for Jesus to return. We look forward to it. We're not scared of it. We want Jesus to return. We live in a time when suffering happens, when persecution is a reality, when beastly rulers try to tempt us away from Jesus. But we know they're defeated. That's the application of this part of Revelation, this scene. It was given to us in the introduction. Look back at 12, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Press on. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep living for Jesus. That's where we find ourselves in this vision. That's who we want to be, those who obey God, those who hold on to the gospel of Jesus. Or look again in 13 verse 10. If anyone goes, um, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. You see it again in 14 verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. When you reflect on this part of Revelation, uh, we see Satan doing everything he possibly can to stop God's people remaining faithful to Jesus and testifying to the truth about Jesus. Remaining faithful, testifying, Satan does everything he can to stop us living for Jesus and proclaiming Jesus, evangelising, sharing the truth about Jesus. This part of Revelation, yeah, it... It can be a source of anxiety for Christians as we read it, but it shouldn't be because we've got nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear if our faith is in Jesus. While we patiently wait for Jesus to return, we need wisdom, though, not to be ensnared by the devil's schemes and the devil's lies. It sounds just like Ephesians chapter 6, this spiritual battle. Um, I think that's the point of 13 verse 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it's a man's number. 
the number is 686. The point is, just don't get tricked into following human laws. Just don't get tricked. They're incomplete. There's no flathead in these verses. No mention of fishing or techniques for casting and catching. But what we see is Satan captured, beaten, flailing around for a time. The battle, the, the war is over. The battle just continues for a little while, but we have nothing to fear. So let's pray that we would persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son into the world. Thank you that he lived the perfect life. That he didn't at any point give in to the temptation of Satan. Lord, thank you that Jesus died our death for us. That he's conquered sin and death. He's taken the punishment that we deserve for living like you don't exist. Lord, thank you that you raised Jesus to life again. Giving us the real hope of spending eternity with you. Sharing his eternal life. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to keep trusting you and living for you while we wait for Jesus to return. We pray that he would return soon. Lord, please forgive us for when we allow ourselves to become distracted, when we allow ourselves to doubt your goodness or to doubt the completeness of Jesus' victory or to doubt the fact that we are really forgiven as we put our trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that as a church we'd be sure of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.